Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Omar Hamad Ali, the author of Malik Ambar, Power and Slavery Across the Indian Ocean, published by Oxford University Press in 2016, part of a World in a Life series. Dr. Hamid Ali is a professor of Comparative African Diaspora History at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Through archival and ethnographic research, he explores issues of power and culture across the Atlantic and Indian Ocean worlds from the early modern period to the modern period. He is the author of several books, including Islam in the Indian Ocean World, A Brief History with Document, which we will also talk about. By discussing the present book, Malik Ambar, we will gain a rare look at an individual who began in obscurity in the Horn of Africa and reached the highest levels of South Asian political and military affairs in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Ambar's rise from slavery in the Horn of Africa to rulership in South Asia sheds lights on the diverse mix of people, products, and practices that shaped the Indian Ocean world during the early modern period. Originally from Ethiopia, historically known as Abyssinia, Ambar is best known for having defended the Deccan, which is in southern India, from being occupied by the Mughals during the first quarter of the 17th century. His ingenuity as a military leader, his diplomatic skills, and his land reform policies contributed to his success in keeping the Deccan free of Mughal imperial rule. Welcome, Omar, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We would like to learn a bit about yourself, if you can speak about where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you had any mentors or scholars that you were influenced by. Sure. Uh, So I was born in Lima, Peru, in South America. My mother is from Peru originally, and my father is East Indian, uh, so Catholic uh, mother, uh, Muslim father. And I grew up in part in California, but also spent uh, almost five years in North Africa and almost three years in, um, in the Middle East. Um, and my, my, my academic training is uh, I started off at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, where I studied cultural anthropology and political economy, and then went to the London School of Economics and Political Science, uh, graduated from there, and then continued uh, with my PhD in history at Columbia University. Um, I worked closely with a Ghanaian anthropologist named Maxwell Owusu in West Africa, uh, who was at the University of Michigan. And then I also worked closely with um, both Eric Foner, uh, at Columbia University, Aisha Jalal, who at that time was at, at Columbia, um, among other faculty members. 
Um, and I really, uh, I, I, I do world history with a focus on the global African diaspora. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've published a number of books before the, the present one, Malik Ambar. How did this particular book idea develop? And if you can tell us about the research process. Sure. So um, my work crosses, uh, in some ways, two vast areas of the world, uh, the Atlantic world and then the Indian Ocean world. And um, I was working as a um, of teaching and doing research as a Fulbright uh, professor at La Universidad Nacional de Colombia. This is in South America, in Bogota. And I was working with an anthropologist named um, Jaime Arrocha, who was the Center for Afro-Columbian um, Studies there. And um, he, he was very interested in, in sort of the role, the possible role of Muslims um, in uh, maroon and slave rebellion um, that were documented. And Sylvia Diouf, uh, who's a very dear friend and colleague of mine, had written this um, magnificent book called Servants of Allah, and looking at Africans enslaved in the Americas. And so um, I began to focus more of my um, interest on the intersection of the African diaspora and Islam and looking at slave resistance uh, through the eyes of Muslims, um, Muslim Africans who were enslaved. And there is a long history of that going back to the earliest um, rebellions in the Americas, um, in Hispaniola and also in New Granada, which is now modern day Colombia. And uh, I looked at you know the, the work of uh, Muslims in the Mali revolt in Brazil and began to see the importance of, of Muslims in, in combating slavery, um, trying to self-liberate. And so my work in West Africa with uh, Professor Maxwell Lewusu um, began to tie me more to the continent and began migrating, if you will, over uh, to East Africa. Uh, my family is from India and, and parts of Pakistan, but mostly in India. And um, I had lived in the Middle East and I was uh, familiar with um, some of the cultures there. And so I began to explore this, uh, the role of Muslims and Africans uh, in that part of the world. And the person that came um, up over and again was Malik Ambar. And there had been uh, three, four biographies written, um, one based on a dissertation in the 1930s and several others in the 1960s and early 70s um, by Indian, South Asian scholars. Um, But there hadn't been um, work done um, beyond a chapter or um, shorter papers um, by people like Richard Eaton um, in, uh, in, you know, in the United States or in the Atlantic world. And he was less known in this part of the world. So I wanted to bring the extraordinary story of Malik Ambar to light and bring out much more of the social history and bring out much more of what I reconstructed in terms of its, uh, the African history, um, the, the part of his life in, in, in Ethiopia, or as you said, um, as it used to be referred to as Abyssinia. And so I, bring, I brought out more of that social history and started looking at a, a certain people that were at that time, people like Chan Bibi and others, um, to start to write a, um, a story. Uh, that's what we do as historians, we write stories. And I wanted to make it a, an accessible story. And so Oxford um, published this biography, which is part of the World in a Life series, as you mentioned. And um, I would love for everybody to know who's studying world history, to know about Malik Ambar and 
and um, people certainly who were working on the African diaspora to understand that there's very, a very rich African diaspora in the Indian Ocean world. Um, most people focus on the Atlantic world um, that precedes the Atlantic by, you know, by, you know, good 15 centuries in terms of the documentary evidence uh, going back to the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. So there's, it, there's um, the, the story of Malik Ambar is, is, is utterly fascinating, I mean, to me, and it was based on field work in Ethiopia and, um, and in India and archival work in, in various places and speaking to many different scholars and really um, trying to pull out um, uh, elements that were less known. Uh, a lot of what has been written about him has been military history, and that's been the, mo- the main focus, but I wanted to bring out other aspects of his extraordinary life. And you've definitely accomplished that in this very accessible short book that made his life uh, much more, I would say, vibrant and animated. Um, Thank you. Well, let's get, let's get to know Malik Ambar. Uh, the book is organized chronologically in nine short chapters, followed by very helpful study questions and short primary source exhibit, which makes it really good for a classroom. The first chapter, uh, Oromo, Abyssinia, and War. Um, can you introduce us and situate Malik Ambar in his Abyssinian context and, in broad strokes, the history of the slave trade that you alluded to between the Red Sea and the broader Indian Ocean in the early modern period? Mm-hmm. So uh, he was Oromo ethnically, which is one of the three major ethnic, ethnic groups in, um, in Ethiopia. Uh, there are, you know, over 80 distinct languages spoken, many different ethnic groups, and even really nations within nations in Ethiopia. Very diverse, very diverse um, part of Africa. I mean, Africa as a whole is extremely diverse, but Ethiopia is especially diverse. And um, he was he was born at a time, so this is the mid 16th century, uh, which is just in the wake of these wars between um, Muslim Ethiopians on the coast, with part of the Adal. Adal Sultanate and the Christian um, Ethiopians that were up in the highlands. And the Oromo people uh, that he was part of were coming up from southern part of Ethiopia. And he had, and his family had, had migrated, settled into the area of Harargay. And um, it's not clear what, what, what the conditions were exactly under which he was made a slave. Um, a couple of authors say that he was sold by his parents into slavery. Uh, again, this is speculation. Um, my what I what I believe probably happened was that he was part of you know the the wars that were going on and slave raiding, and he was captured as part of um, others um, in his family and his group of people in Harargue. And he was. But what we do know is that he he is he goes he marches to the uh, coast and is taken to um, southern Arabia, and then from there goes up to um, Baghdad. Um, but the context in Africa is such that there is ongoing wars. Um, that people are moving around. The Oromo have adopted horses and are fighting back. Um, in some ways, they have enemies on both the Christian in the Christian side and the, and the Muslim side and the coast and in the highlands. And these are all Ethiopians. These are, you know, Ethiopians. They're not Europeans coming in or people that are, um, you know, from the Arab, uh, heartlands. They're people who have adopted Islam on the coast and, and Christianity, which entered into Ethiopia as early as the fourth century. Um, so 
these are uh, the conditions under which he's living in. And I, I try to portray that uh, and create that context in that early chapter. He's definitely, uh, I mean, exceptional character in many ways, but also really speaks of a broader historical, uh, I would say, experiences uh, at this time by experiencing uh, involuntary mobility across Southern Arabia, as you've mentioned in Chapter 2, Mocha, Baghdad, and beyond, all the way to South Asia. So in what ways the racial identity of Malik Ambar mattered, and how was it incorporated within the Indian caste system once he reached South Asia? So it's great questions. Um, so he, in some ways, is is brought into the military slave system that is part of the Western Indian Ocean world that we're essentially taking people from the Horn of Africa to different parts of the Middle East and to South Asia. And uh, race, in some ways, has been very much defined by sort of our Atlantic understanding of of the construction of race, which is as I always say, it's not just a social construct. Everything is a social construct. Um, and it's also based on power. I mean, that's the issue. The categories that are created for racial distinctions is based on power, who has the power to, to create those things. Not to say that the subaltern don't have a role, but um, the oppressed don't have a role in that. But it's dominated by a particular uh, those who are in power. And so um, race looks different in that part of the world. I mean, it, it, the notion of being black and it necessarily meaning that you're a slave did not hold true there because there were people who had ascended to great heights of power um, who were not enslaved. And many of those, and slavery itself is it has looks very different in that part of the world compared to the Atlantic world. There's a lot more malleability. Like, so you have people who are technically slaves who are ministers uh, and regent ministers in the case of Malik Ambar, um, uh, but also in, not just in South Asia, but in, in, the, in other parts of the Middle East, you have people who are rising to power who are technically slaves. Uh, and so it, this is not to, to romanticize or glorify slavery in any way, because it's a system fundamentally based on violence. I mean, people are enslaved. It's a violent act. Um, and there were many different kinds of slaves. Women were, you know, served as concubines, but there were also people who were working in all kinds of areas as slaves, like pearl divers, but also working on, um, on, on farms and, and in other capacities as domestic workers. But um, race does have um, a role in the sense that uh, there is um, a borrowing, if you will, of racial concepts that begins to m- go into the Indian Ocean world. Um, and it, it's not to say that it's universally held that, you know, this idea of blackness is inferior because you have these cases of not just Malik Gambar, but Ilkas Khan and others, these Abyssinian nobles and are portrayed in these beautiful um, portraits. Um, it was a wonderful exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on, on some of these portraits, but they're in the, um, you know, the Victoria Albert Museum and the Louvre and then the, um, uh, and the British Museum um, and the Metropolitan and other museums. I mean, you have these extraordinary uh, portraits, and of course, in in South Asia, uh, that de- depict blackness as not just uh, as synonymous with slavery. So it's a it's a mix of influences, and it's a transitional period, if you will, because the Atlantic world is beginning to make this very c- um, close connection between blackness and enslavement. 
um, that would happen in another century or so fully uh, with the racial codification of slavery and the Chesapeake and then scientific racism thereafter that uh, connects that blackness with enslavement and uh, um, status, uh, uh, so a lower status um, among humans. Um, but Malik Ambar was, uh, was, was somebody who was ascended to power um, because he was an extraordinarily uh, talented leader um, in terms of his military abilities, in terms of his administrative capacities, in terms of his, um, you know, uh, diplomatic skills, and would end up ruling as the de facto ruler for about 25 years because of that. Um, and he was not just the only Abyssinian, there were, there were numbers of others as depicted in those images. Um, so there was a range of experiences of slavery, um, a range of ways in which race was constructed, um, which were not just about uh, sort of blackness um, being inferior. Um, it was more complicated than that. Definitely. I mean, from this, we learned that race did not really preclude social mobility, if I can say. But however, we have to be always cognizant of social hierarchies and power structures during this time. Um, in Chapter 3, The Deccan and Military Slavery, uh, the life of Malik Ambar in many ways sheds light on the contour and history of military slavery in South Asia and the possibilities that it offered for somebody like Malik Ambar in terms of identity, mobility, and career. And that, that becomes, uh, you know, uh, part of South Asian history once we move to chapter four and five, in which uh, Ahmad Nagar and fidelity to salt, and in chapter five, rebels, regency, uh, and race. Um, in what ways the entanglements of, uh, between Malik Ambar and Mirak Dabir, Nizam Shah, and Chan Bibi that you mentioned shaped the trajectory of Malik Ambar's life and career in the Ahmad Nagar Sultanate? Well, Malik Dabir, uh, who also went by Genghis uh, Khan, uh, was an Abyssinian himself, and he had become um, a regent and uh, minister and had, according to the records, a thousand slaves. Um, so this was a very powerful figure in, in, the, in the Deccan and, and specifically the Sultanate of Ahmadinejad. And he took, it looks like he took Malik Ambar under his wing, um, and in some ways, probably identified um, his talents and wanted to cultivate them. And it was because of, I think, that relationship that he was able to develop even further, that is, Malik Ambar was. And um, his, his, Malik Dabir was actually um, poisoned, killed, and um, Malik Ambar had to basically leave. And that's at the point where he basically becomes a mercenary and starts to amass a following and becomes a mercenary general and serves multiple courts and obviously develops uh, uh, even further in terms of his leadership abilities, military skills and what have you, and is commanding now large um, numbers of people, uh, cavalry force um, soldiers that are both Abyssinian and Maratha, you know, Hindus, uh, and it's a it's a fascinating um, transition. Uh, he works for a time under the command of Chan Bibi, who is an extraordinary female uh, leader in the Deccan, uh, who is somebody who prides herself on trying to defend uh, the Deccan from Mughal incursions from the north. So the imperialist Mughals uh, were trying to push down into the Deccan, and she 
famously is sort of um, uh, in this holdout in this fort. And as I described there, and based on the documentary sources that, you know, there's a breach in the, in the walls and she takes off her veil and puts on armor and starts to go right at the breach and her bodyguards and people who, who had started to run away, tr- see her bravery and turn around and, and, and join her. Uh, and they, they're able to fend off for a while, uh, the Mughals. But Malik Ambar is somebody who's observing this sort of the heroism of Chan Bibi and um, develops um, in some ways this sort of um, desire to maintain the independence of the Deccan from Mughal rule. But he's also in the, the dissolution of the Bahmani states. He is dealing with multiple sultanates that are at times friendly to each other, at times at, at war with each other. So he's having to kind of pull together uh, multiple uh, kingdoms as uh, sultanates um, uh, together to try to fend off the, the Mughals. And he develops, you know, guerrilla style warfare um, called uh, Barigiri, uh, which uses striking uh, cavalry force and then they retreat and then they come back and he builds fortresses and reinforces fortresses in the area. And just is very masterful at, 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 at keeping um enough of the forces in the area together at critical moments to keep the Mughals out. And if the Mughals do take over parts of the land, they aren't able to maintain control of it. So uh, an extraordinary leader in, in many ways who, uh, who is influenced by Malik Dabir, who's Abyssinian, um, by Chan Bibi, um, uh, and the princesses who rises as a, as a regent minister herself and takes over from her brother. Um, and, and, and you know the role of of the person who is the actual ruler in Nizam the Nizam Shah is basically somebody who he installs um, when they get to the age of around early adolescence, 12, 13, um, they end up dying, and he does this two or three times. So it's not it's not this is not to say that he was um, he was not certainly not a saint uh, Malik Ambar. He was somebody who was a political he was politically cunning. And he did what he believed he needed to do to maintain control. And so he essentially installed one after another king and served as the de facto ruler, as regent minister uh, for, again, for a quarter of a century. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you say more about that in Chapter 7, the people and the battle of uh, Batavadi. So how did the conflicts of the Mughals and the Marathas unfold uh, in Chapter 6 and 7? And what were the roles of Malik Ambar in this battle? And, and this larger conflict. So, you know, one of the very interesting things that I try to bring out in the book is the role that he played, that is Malik Ambar played in terms of commanding um, Hindus and uh, Marathas in particular um, in, his, in his armies. And that some of the grandparents, uh, grandparents of, of, of Shivaji, who's the great um, Hindu uh, warrior uh, is is influenced, uh, is under the command of Malik Ambar and, and surely learned from him um, and deepened their understanding of military uh, affairs, um, being under Malik Ambar's general command. And so there is this very interesting line from, you know, the sort of the fierce independent spirit of Chan Bibi to that of Malik Ambar to, the, to Shivaji um, that I draw. 
and I, I just think that that there's uh, it, that itself is a fascinating story because it brings together a very diverse group of of people who are influenced by each other. Um, but the Mughals ultimately do take over. Uh, they within a couple of years after Malik Gambar passes away, his son is not able to um, keep them at bay, and they do come in. And I think it's because. He wasn't able to carry out the multiple roles and abilities of Malik Gambar in terms of his diplomacy skills, in terms of the general administration, and his military uh, prowess. And so it's that that the, the the confluence of those different skills that allowed him to keep the Deccanis uh, independent for the time that uh, he was around. Um, but ultimately, the Mughals do take over the the, the area and um, and impose themselves on the region. Mm-hmm. Besides you, his military career, you also shed light on uh, justice, land reform, and legacy as well. So what were some of the features of Malik Ambar's governance, his infrastructural investments, and legacy in the Deccan, as well as that of his offspring and the Siddi community, which also originated from the Horn of Africa and East Africa? Yes. So the Perhaps one of the most important things that he did was to give more control to essentially the peasants, the the farmers, the local uh, population in terms of what they would yield from their own crops. Uh, People became more invested in developing their own crops because they were getting more of it back. And so it was it was smart because by by in some ways giving people the incentive to have more. Uh, to keep for themselves and less taxes, it produced a lot more. And so it was, it was, if you will, a win-win. And so I'm not saying that um, he was necessarily beloved, but he was somebody who had the admiration and respect of many people in the area. I think that that is something that you can say because even his, um, the Mughal chronicler who talks about Malik Gambar upon his death speaks about him with just extraordinary respect and I think that that translates not just at the higher levels of the Mughal court, but I think um, among just ordinary people in the Deccan um, who who benefited from Malik Ambar, the stability that to the extent there was stability in the region, Malik Ambar provided that um, and uh, offered um, greater returns on their own work of their own fields. So that was a very important move. And also, you know, the work that he did to not build necessarily new fortifications, but to reinforce existing fortifications and to create communication systems and pathways across the area. And so we have this documentary evidence from, you know, from Dutch merchants and other travelers, in addition to uh, the records from the the Dekanis and, and the Mughals. Mm-hmm. As much as I would like this conversation to keep going, uh, I would like to ask you, who do you hope will read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Well, I, I'm really happy to say that it's been it's been picked up by a number of, of scholars and people around the world. And it's just um, been such a pleasure and honor to um, to be parts of conversations where people are beginning to appreciate just how extraordinary Malik Ambar is, and somebody who can draw attention to the African diaspora in the Indian Ocean world and begin to um, sort of deconstruct notions of race and slavery in comparison to the Atlantic world. Um, but the book is, is, is a value, I think, 
has been a value and I hopefully will continue to be a value to, to teachers uh, and then scholars. But you had mentioned that in the back, there's the primary sources and questions. And I had actually um, convinced Oxford <laughs> um, that to, to have primary sources because it, it's important that students and others who are studying this, because there's many people say who aren't or scholars who aren't as familiar with this part of the world who want to learn about it, but you want to provide them with the primary sources. Where is this information coming from? So uh, there's over you know about a dozen or so uh, sources that are listed there, excerpted in translation with a little bit of context in the back, which I think has been particularly valuable uh, for people to see themselves as not only the, the sort of the consumers of history, but also the producers of history. I mean, we're reconstructing stories. That's what we do. And so I'm trying to tell the story of Malik Ambar on the building on the shoulders of great giants and scholars uh, before me um, in, a, in a way that's accessible um, to people and, and show those connections to other great black leaders um, uh, in the global African diaspora. Talking about primary sources, um, can you tell us a bit about your other book, Islam in the Indian Ocean World, A Brief History with Documents, published by Bedford in 2016? And what are your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Thank you. Um, so that book, uh, Islam in the Indian Ocean World, which is looking at um, sort of the documentary sources uh, in a number of areas um, in terms of the Islamic uh, world uh, from you know, the, the, the 7th century going forward, um, is trying to pull together, I mean, I think it, well, it, it pulls together documentary sources from South Asia, the Middle East, and East Africa. And um, partly why Bedford St. Martin's was interested in the project is because there hadn't really been any documentary source book that pulled together sources from these three different areas. It was, they were, you know, you have documentary sources in East, from East Africa, you know, collections or from the Middle East or from South Asia, but not together. So this brings it all together in a, in a, in a unique way. And I have a very long introduction that kind of goes through the different areas of this history. Um, but again, tools for teachers and for scholars to use to delve more as um, creators and writers of history themselves. Um, my latest project actually is um, a three-volume series called Afro-South Asia in the Global African Diaspora. It's quite a mouthful. I'll say it again. It's the, um, the um, Afro-South Asia in the Global African Diaspora. And uh, it includes about 34 contributors. Uh, my co-editors are, um, uh, are, uh, include art historians, um, uh, uh, Muslim Islamic scholars, um, anthropologists, um, and uh, it's 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 been a, a wonderful project um, that has included many different kinds of people um, from different disciplines to shed a very um, bright light on the role of again Afro South Asians as part of this global African diaspora, the connections between parts of East Africa and South Asia, uh, African-Americans and South Asia, um, West Africans and South Asia. And, you know, with the recent uh, selection of the vice presidential um, um, candidate for the, under Joe Biden of Kamala Harris, 
Uh, I just wanted to note that she is Afro-South Asian, and she is part of the global African diaspora. Um, she is a Jamaican, Black, uh, and East Indian background. And I think that there are these really interesting connections that people don't necessarily think about. Uh, because sometimes, you know, East Asians are put over here, while um, Africans are put over there. And I think that there's more and more um, evidence of just the extraordinary um, interplay between Africans and South Asia um, across the global um, diaspora. So that's a three-volume series, and um, it is out on Amazon, um, and, uh, and we'll be doing a little bit of promotion over the coming period. Um, perhaps my co-editors, uh, Kenneth Behrushov and, uh, and Jasmine Grays, uh, could come on and maybe do something. But it's been a, a great project, and um, it's a good moment because the exhibit that I had done online with uh, Sylvain Diouf on the African diaspora in the Indian Ocean world, in the Indian Ocean world at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, part of the New York Public Library, is now being phased out. Um, and so this is a good moment to kind of draw some new attention to um, this African diaspora in that part of the world. So that's a, that's that's not, a, that's yeah. a new project. Mm -hmm. That sounds fantastic. And we would love to have you again talking about the other book. Great. Um, Thank you for sharing the fascinating life of Malik Ambar with us today. And I hope this draws attention um, to really unexplored and untapped history of connections between South Asia and Africa. Um, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Malik Ambar, Power and Slavery Across the Indian Ocean, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.